call it sort of a perfect storm of factors that have come together over the last couple of years to create this crisis situation. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. On April 3rd, social worker Leah Rosen Pritchard was working at a Brattleboro shelter for people experiencing homelessness when she was killed, allegedly by a shelter resident. The brutal murder of the 36-year-old shelter coordinator shocked the state. It struck especially close to home for Rick DeAngelis, co-executive director of Good Samaritan Haven, which operates shelters and transitional housing in Barrie and Montpelier. In February, DeAngelis' son Gabe was stabbed while working at a Montpelier warming shelter. He is recovering from his wounds. Vermont's system of care for people who are unhoused or in need of mental health services is in a perilous state. This fragile system will be further strained as pandemic funding for emergency housing is about to end for 3,000 people who are currently living in motels. Affordable housing is in critically short supply, psychiatric beds are scarce, an opiate crisis rages, and homelessness is rising. Vermont has the second highest per capita rate of homelessness in the country, behind only California, according to a recent government report. Later in today's program, we talk about the drivers of homelessness and possible solutions with Ann Sasson, Interim Director of the Vermont Affordable Housing Coalition. We begin this Vermont conversation with Rick DeAngelis. He began working with people who are experiencing homelessness in Boston in the 1980s. DeAngelis went on to work at the Vermont Housing and Conservation Board and was the first executive director of what is now Downstreet Housing and Community Development, before becoming co-director of Good Samaritan Haven in 2020. I began by asking DeAngelis his thoughts on the killing that occurred at the Brattleboro Shelter operated by the group Groundworks Collaborative. Uh, we are still very much grieving and saddened and feel very, very challenged by what happened. Um, I have a close call. I did not know Leah, but I know many of the staff at um, Groundwork, so I feel like I have a real personal connection with that organization. Um, so very much uh, upset by what happened. Um, you know, and we're also concerned about, obviously, our own organization. And um, I don't know if this is a wave of violence, but um, uh, it, to have these incidents occur in a very short time is uh, really making us look quite hard at, um, at being as safe as we possibly can. Can you talk a little bit about your own family's experience? Um, what happened in Montpelier that resulted in uh, your son Gabe being stabbed in February? Yeah, I can tell you a little bit, but I, I don't want to get into detail because it's actually in the criminal court system right now. And uh, I don't want to uh, comment on the specifics, but um, yeah, Gabe has, uh, he worked for Good Sam a uh, number of years ago uh, in our shelter system. And um, and then he started again this winter. Uh, most of his hours were at the uh, Montpelier uh, Transit Center, um, which is where we were, we have been operating a, basically a warming shelter so that uh, folks who are on the street have someplace to go uh, in the early evening. 
And, uh, and typically after they leave the shelter, uh, we would close about nine o'clock at night. They go to an overflow shelter uh, operated by a group called Another Way. And um, so it's, uh, you know, most nights there are very quiet actually. And um, not much happens most of the time. The folks uh, who come in have a bite to eat little bit of conversation, and uh, then they prepare to move, move on over to the overflow shelter. Uh, but that particular night, there was a, you know, a fellow who really wasn't even intending to stay at the shelter. He wasn't homeless, and, um, and uh, disagreement broke out about his presence there with Gabe, and, um, and uh, unfortunately, this gentleman had a knife in his hands and he stabbed him a number of times. So uh, it's a night that I <laughs> can't get out of my mind because I got a call shortly after it happened. And um, um, and I, I made it to the emergency room within 15 minutes. And uh, to see my son in that condition was uh, very, very upsetting. Um, so it was uh, uh, something quite awful. Um, and uh, I guess the good news is, is that uh, Gabe, he was lucky. In a way, he was lucky because uh, there was a second staff person there that night who had an experience as an EMT. And she was able to kind of stabilize his condition before the ambulance came. And uh, maybe perhaps she saved his life. So very thankful to that young lady. Um, but the good news now is that Gabe is uh, recovering. And uh, he's been told that, um, you know, it's going to take a while, but that uh, he should regain back, you know, the use of his, you know, all of his uh, impairments should be should be healed within a matter of time. So we're thankful for that. What has this done to, I mean, staffing shelters is difficult to begin with. Has the right. violence had an impact on your ability to get people to want to work in the shelters? Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of concern. Um, uh, after the incident with Gabe, there was a lot of discussion and people sharing their concerns. Um, and I think especially after the uh, incident at Groundworks, the death and um, We've had some people who say that they're considering leaving. Uh, we've had applicants that um, uh, who have said that they're no longer interested because of what happened. So it um, it makes it harder to hire than it. It was already hard to hire, and uh, throughout COVID, you know we, you know we were we were keeping it together and managing to operate our shelter, but. Um, uh, it took a, quite a bit of scrambling on our part. So yeah, this is another challenge to this essential service that we're that we're providing and other groups around the state. Talk about the scale of homelessness now and the work that Good Samaritan does. Sure. Uh, well, we're in the middle of a crisis in, uh, with respect to homelessness. Uh, the numbers had been have been uh, increasing over the last 
I mean, they've been steadily increasing since Good Sam opened in 1985. But I think particularly in the last 10 years, uh, as the housing market heated up again and the opioid crisis uh, worsened, uh, there was a more steep increase in the numbers. So, um, uh, so right now in Washington County, there's almost 500 people who are uh, homeless, either in a motel room that's being assisted by the state of Vermont, a shelter bed, or on the streets. Uh, and that's really an astronomical rate of homelessness. If you compared that to you know, what had been seen around the country, even some of the hotspots, um, the rate per 10,000 people is extremely high in Washington County. So it's a problem. And um, uh, I call it sort of a perfect storm of factors that have come together over the last couple of years to create this crisis situation. What are the elements of that perfect storm? Why is this happening right <laughs> now? Well, I think to me, it's, it's, uh, it's a complicated problem. It's a multi-factor problem for sure. But to me, we should start with the housing market. And in fact, if you look at them, you know, I was thinking at the evolution of uh, emergency shelter providers in Vermont, a number of them get started in the late 80s. And, I, you know, that just, it occurred to me that we had another housing crisis in the late 80s. There was a real boom in Vermont, a lot of buying, uh, buying up of real estate and so forth, real explosion. So, um, and I'm thinking, well, this is exactly the situation that we have here now. Only the housing crisis is manifesting uh, uh, very much so in the rental housing market. So I think that really underlies the problem that we have now. So to me, that's the um, uh, that's the setting for the perfect storm. Uh, the other elements uh, are clearly the opioid epidemic uh, that has um, uh, it's so difficult, so challenging. Um, other factors, uh, we have an aging population here in Vermont, and um, many of many of the guests that we're seeing are um, they're older uh, and uh, they are impoverished or they can't keep up with the cost of uh, housing. And um, and then the third element, um, I think healthcare is is uh, is a is a huge issue. A lot of our guests uh, come to us with significant healthcare problems that, again, have contributed to their uh, impoverishment and, I guess, marginalization in our communities. What are the things? I know you have uh, you do surveys of your guests and your services. What are the things that have been kind of common themes that result in people being homeless? Uh, difficulty getting housing. That's, I would say, the number one issue. Um, people are very, uh, in the survey work that we've done and the studies that have been done in central Vermont, um, breakup of families and tensions and difficulties, lack of support within the family, end of a marriage, that is a major contributing factor. And that's, I have to say, I just, um, 
kind of more of a subjective uh, observation. Being in the in our campus here, our shelter campus, um, I find that many people they don't have other other folks that they can rely on, family members or friends. They seem very alone, and um, find that very sad. And uh, and so that's one thing we've tried to provide here is some sense of community, and because um, uh, I think it's so crucial. So certainly, um, uh, family, you know, dislocation, breakup, disconnection from family is a huge issue. Uh, substance abuse. I mentioned the op opioid crisis. Uh, healthcare, uh, mental health. Um, you know, we do our own intake and we ask people, you know, what's impacting you? And about 80% uh, of our guests say that mental uh, health concerns um, create, you know, are a disabling factor for them. And, you know, that's not necessarily severe, you know, schizophrenia, severe mental health issues, but it's also depression and anxiety. So those are those are the big factors. My first job out of college was working in a shelter in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right. and I would do yeah. intake interviews. And the thing that struck me the most and stays with me to this day is how little difference there was between me and the guests. It was often one event, one really simple and common event, like losing a job. And the main difference was that I had a family behind me, I had a safety net, and they had no net. They hit the ground, and they landed in that shelter. And there were the two of us talking, and there was very little. You know, these were often people who had college educations, who maybe had right. an okay job. But you take away that little cushion, that buffer, the family mm -hmm. that grabs you before you hit the ground, and you land in a shelter. I, I wonder, I know you also trace your roots back to working in Boston at the Pine Street Inn. Um, what have, I'm just curious, your impressions and how they've changed in the decades that you've worked in this field, what your sense of what is changing? Yeah, well, I just want to say something about family. And um, because I do think that is a crucial factor. And, um, you know, one of the great parts about my job, I, you know, my job can be very stressful and uh, it's not easy running this, this shelter system here. And, uh, but I, I get the opportunity of meeting uh, our guests and you're so right that, um, you know, once you have the time to just hang out, um, people are having cigarettes, you know, talking with them and stuff like that, you just say, well, this is just another human being. And for the grace of God, I would be there. And um, in fact, a couple of weeks ago, I was at, uh, we have staff at the uh, Hilltop Inn uh, Motel in Berlin. This is, we have about 80 people who are living there with support from the state. And um, there was a speak out organized by Brenda Siegel. And uh, um, we had, uh, so people, I, they were speaking so powerfully about their situation and how they got there and what they were fearing if the motel program should end. And um, so after it was done, a woman came up to me and, uh, you know, we introduced ourselves to each other and turned out she's, she had been working in an office in downtown Montpelier for 
25 years, an office that I often did business with, and I just, I don't want to reveal the name of that office, but she said, listen, I played by all the rules. I worked hard. I was responsible. I had a home and, um, you know, and then some things happened, some things in her personal life to her family. She looked that, that, that support was eroded. And then finally, the only thing she could afford was an apartment out in the country. And, um, that was not very good. And she said there was one spot in that apartment that it was the roof wasn't leaking <laughs> and you had to limit yourself to that. And she said, finally, the landlord came to her and he said, listen, I'm not going to maintain this any longer. So it's time for you to leave. So to me, it was really, uh, you know, just a great tragedy uh, to hear that story and, um, and to hear about that person's experience. And um, so I just wanted to share that story with you. I got kind of off of the, you know, the evolution of homelessness from Boston in the 1980s, um, you know, to my personal experiencing hearing people talk about what's happened to, the, to them. Why do you keep doing this work, Rick? I, you know, I just, it's funny how I got connected to this. Um, uh, you know, it was at Pine Street uh, back in the er very early 80s, maybe 1980, 1981. I had an interest in a young woman who happened to be a nurse, and she was working at uh, the nurse's clinic at Pine Street, which has become a somewhat famous thing in the history of homelessness, at least in New England, uh, that nurse's clinic. And, um, and uh, she introduced me to Pine Street. I ended up getting a job there. And um, just uh, I, it uh, was a very powerful experience working at home uh, at Pine Street, uh, just amazing. And um, and it was a good education for me. And uh, from working at Pine Street, Pine Street started an affordable housing program while I was there, and I was um, one of their staff. And we we should just for folks who don't know that the Pine Street Inn in it's really Boston's. I guess, oldest and largest shelter for homeless people. Yes, it is a very, very large program. When I was there in the 80s, you know, they had their own crisis because uh, uh, Boston was gentrifying very rapidly. The South End, which had been the lodging house kind of capital of the East Coast, uh, was, you know, buildings were being sucked up and turned into condos. Um, uh, so there was an explosion of homelessness in the early 80s there. And um, uh, Pine Street on some nights housed up to 700 people a night. Uh, it's just uh, just an amazing scene. And um, but they evolved. They have evolved into many other services. And I was lucky enough to, to be there at the beginning when they were developing their housing program. And from there, I I basically built on that, built a career in, in uh, uh, um, providing affordable housing. Talk about what Good Samaritan uh, has evolved into. You are also now a multifaceted service provider for unhoused people. Yeah, yeah, I would like to do that because I, I in some ways, uh, Pine Street has been a model in my mind also, COTS in Burlington, COTS has a great program. And uh, in that, um, you know, it's with people who are experiencing this trauma of 
you know, being on their own with no place to go, you know, it's not one size fits all. There are many different needs um, uh, in, in, in ways that you need to accommodate people and, and try to support them. And Pine Street over the years has developed that, that uh, a system. You know, they have housing units, they have transitional housing, they have sober homes. And um, so Good Sam, um, we're beginning to do that. And, um, you know, for 30 years, we were basically just a very simple shelter with bunk beds in downtown Barrie, uh, in an old single family home. But uh, we knew that we had to, to grow in order to respond to what was happening here. So in the last three years, we've added two shelters. We also have a street outreach team. We have a, a healthcare and COVID safety uh, officer, and uh, we're hoping to develop a what we would uh, what we're going to call a recovery oriented shelter. A lot of people are struggling with substance abuse, and we want to have an option for them in which they can um, work on their recovery. And if they fall if they uh, fall out of recovery, have a setback they still have the protection of being in our, our housing and shelter system. So we're trying to develop options. Um, uh, the, and the other thing I didn't mention, we also have a hotel-based program as well, and we provide supports in the uh, area motels. What is your sense of how the hotel emergency housing program is working? We hear very mixed things that the hotels become centers, you know, for a lot of problems with substance use and crime. And then we also hear that they're life-saving. So how do we, give me your sense of it. Yeah, well, overall, I'm glad that we've had, uh, the state was willing to um, support people in the motels. We needed that. It was the right thing to do. Um, uh, yeah, uh, the motels are, um, in terms of physical condition, many of them, you know, they're they're uh, they're worn out, older buildings, uh, not in great condition, and um, not intended for people to be living there permanently. Uh, we have households at the hilltop that have been there for three years. Um, those motel rooms really weren't built for that, and uh, and the hotel owners, in many cases, haven't been able to keep up with that intensity of use. So yeah, it's not great. Glad we got it though. And um, uh, what I'm concerned about now is uh, what's gonna happen on May 31st, because there'll be a ratcheting down of the eligibility on May 31st and, um, and also in June. I mean, the program as, you know, for what we, as far as we know right now, the program is ending. So, you know, we're concerned I'll tell you, the communities are really concerned. Um, you know, I attended a meeting of public officials last week from Barry, Berlin, and Montpelier. Uh, you know, they're saying, how are we going to handle it if there's an exodus of people out on the streets? What can we do? How can we prepare? Um, so there's um, reason to be concerned. What will happen? I mean, so we're talking about there's there's two things going on, correct? There is rental assistance that was provided during the pandemic where people are going to lose a rental subsidy and that may well result in them being pushed out of their homes 
and the hotel emergency housing, which is also ending. Um, when do both of those programs end? Well, I can't speak very knowledgeably about the rental assistance program. And may, I know Anne is coming on the show later. Uh, I'm sure she can do that. But I can't speak about Washington County. Um, in Washington County right now, we have 350 individuals living in motel rooms with uh, uh, assi assistance from the state of Vermont. Uh, and in May, uh, a good number of them are no longer going to be eligible for that assistance. Now we don't have a precise. We don't even have a. We don't have a precise number from the state. They said they're working on it, but we're estimating that it could be 30 to 40 percent of that 350. So um, you know that's a big number, and um, in central Vermont, to have 100, 120 people uh, who have nowhere to go. Um, now, Good Sam Haven recently purchased a motel uh, on the Barry Montpelier Road that you've you're converting. Explain what you're what that is becoming. Uh, well, it's already been operating for six months. So during the COVID period, we knew we had to to ratchet up our program. We had one shelter in Barry. Um, uh, we uh, have added two additional facilities. Uh, we're leasing a property in the town of Barry, and we house 13 people there a night. And then uh, in um, uh, August 21, 2021, we purchased what was known as the Twin City Motel. Uh, it's a motel that had been here for years and years and years and years, I think dating back to the 1930s. And... Um, we uh, did a very thorough rehabilitation of the property and it was opened as our main shelter campus uh, in August of uh, last year. And since that time, we've been close to full. All winter, we've been, at, we've been full and we're housing uh, 31 people a night. And, uh, but we have more space here too. So it allows us, uh, provides us with some air, uh, offices to meet with folks, uh, work on their their plans to, you know, to try to get out. And, um, and we have some nice common areas. And, um, and just right before uh, this interview, we were looking at a spot out in front of um, our office building here that we're going to be developing a very large community garden, which I think is going to be helpful in providing us with some great food but also giving people something uh, productive to be involved in. Rick, you recently authored a, um, in the aftermath of the attack that we mentioned uh, that involved your son back in February, uh, a mm -hmm. beautiful essay with your fellow um, uh, executive director and uh, in which you talked about picking up the pieces. Uh, and you mentioned an ancient Japanese philosophy called Kitsungi. Um, tell me about Kitsungi and how it is a model for you in your work. Yeah, uh, much of the credit for that that article goes to my very talented uh, co-director, uh, Julie Bond. But uh, I think the basic principles of what we are trying to express is, um, you know, beginning anew in every moment. Um, you know, the world 
there's always something happening, breaking, going wrong in our lived experience. And, um, you know, the Buddhists would say there's a lot of suffering in the world. It just exists. But uh, we have an opportunity in every moment to try to rebuild, to heal, to start again. And um, I think it's a beautiful uh, ethic and a way to try to live our lives. Uh, and, uh, and to me, it's, uh, you know, uh, Good Sam comes out of a, the, a Christian, Christian tradition. It was a religious organi uh, organization uh, initially, but it's very much in keeping with that tradition as well uh, to welcome people and to accept them as they are and uh, and do our best to to assist them uh, in a way that they want to be assisted. So, um, yeah, so it's a it's a good practice, isn't it? It 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 seems like a very apt metaphor for the work that you do. Um, you at Good Sam Haven, you've gone beyond just providing shelter and refuge, um, and it sounds to me like you really have implemented a lot of the um, things that have inspired you that you saw in your early work in Boston. Um, talk about what you feel a model program for helping people who are unhoused should look like and has to include. Uh, yeah, great question, David. Thank you. Um, certainly, we need to and want to develop the best access we can to permanent, supportive, affordable housing. And... Um, we're working on that. It's quite slow. It's it, it takes a long time, a lot of money, a lot of talent to develop affordable housing. We're lucky to have a great organization here in central Vermont, like Downstreet Housing. And so um, that's our number one priority is, is getting access to units, both through partnerships with owners of, of affordable housing and by having targeted and reserved units that 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 we can refer our guests to, and uh, we're building our portfolio there. Uh, right now, we have three units, and we've got another eight in the pipeline. So I would say that's the number one priority. We want people to have their own homes outside the shelter. Uh, secondly, uh, I mentioned the uh, substance abuse and what a challenge that is. Um, we feel like we need to have something that works uh, more seamlessly for people who don't have a home, uh, who are on the streets or in the shelter. And um, so we're very excited about converting one of our shelters into a recovery-oriented shelter, or we call it the Pledge House. And uh, I think that's going to, uh, we think it can be a great model and, uh, and that it's going to help a, a lot of folks. So those are our two top priorities. There are many other things, you know, healthcare, uh, developing relationships with healthcare providers, um, uh, employment. Uh, we're beginning, we're taking some baby steps to having some strong relationships with area employers. And um, so I would say that the, those are our top on our list of making our program more robust and providing, you know, shelter is important for damn sure, you know, food and shelter. But um, 
we want to give people more than just the basics. Is the state doing enough in this area? You know, I, uh, I, I, I'm usually pretty careful about <laughs> um, talking about our state partners because um, I do think that they do a lot. But, uh, you know, yes, more needs to be done. And I'm particularly concerned about the shelter network itself. Hey, let's face it, we're going to need shelters in Vermont in the short term, in the medium term. I hope not in the long term. I hope over time there's less need for emergency housing. I, I think more needs to be put into the emergency shelter system. And, um, you know, many of the buildings that are shelters are not the greatest facilities. And uh, they've, you know, we've adapted older um, uh, facilities like our, our single family house in Barrie. So I think there needs to be an upgrade there so those buildings work better for our guests and are safer for everybody, our staff and our guests. So I have been advocating for that and uh, for increased support for both the shelter buildings and the shelter programs. You know, again, don't want to trash our partner, our state partners at uh, AHS, but, you know, it's expensive to run our program. And um, uh, we get only about 60% of our operating funds from, funds from the state of Vermont. So for us, we have to raise almost a half a million dollars a year uh, from other sources and the community. That is a heavy lift. And, um, you know, I spend a good deal of my time just raising money. And uh, there's not a lot of time um, to be actually, you know, running the day-to-day -day operations here. A lot of people, when they see somebody on the street who is unhoused, look away. Uh, you do the opposite. You go towards them. What keeps you going in this work after the many years that you've been involved in it? Well, thanks for the question. I, you know, I'm, I'm like anybody else, really. And, uh, you know, when I speak to, you know, groups, I spoke with the high school group last week. And, uh, you know, and they asked the question, what can we do? And my response is, you know, the very first thing you can do is be aware of people suffering around you. And um, I, I think to me, that's not something, you know, you don't have to be a director or anything like that. It's just an ethic that that I try to live in my life to have some some awareness. And, um, and, um, and then you, you know, then you say, well, what can, you know, do I have the capacity to respond? Is there something I can do? And uh, David, I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And uh, I had some skills in housing development and nonprofit management. And I said, I think I can contribute to this problem. I can't do everything, but I have some capacity to do something. So, you know, it's, um, uh, I, you know, and each one of us has to, uh, can, can make that choice. You know, what can we contribute? Maybe it's a small thing, a word of kindness, uh, but that's meaningful too, that, uh, um, that can make a difference in somebody's life. Well, Rick DeAngelis, uh, I want to thank you for your work and for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. It's been my pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Rick DeAngelis is the co-executive director of Good Samaritan Haven. 
We turn now to Anne Sawson. She is the interim director of the Vermont Affordable Housing Coalition. I began by asking Sawson why she believes that Vermont is at the edge of a precipice when it comes to homelessness and affordable housing. Vermont, um, like some other states in the country, expanded um, its existing um, motel um, shelter program um, to keep um, Vermonters experiencing homelessness um, safe um, throughout the pandemic. Um, right now, we have about 1,800 households, um, 2,800 people who are sheltered um, in motels across the state. Um, and we're up against um, the end of, of this program as we know it. Um, right now, we're in budget discussions um, to try um, to do everything we can um, to keep people sheltered um, so that they don't enter into unsheltered homelessness. There are two programs that are ending imminently. One is the motel housing program, and the other is the housing, the rental assistance. Can you just explain the difference so that people really can wrap their heads around this? Sure. So um, there are two programs, one um, that keeps um, people sheltered in motels um, is a form of transitional housing. And the other is um, the adverse weather um, conditions program, which allows Vermonters experiencing homelessness to seek um, shelter in motels um, during the winter. And both of those programs um, are coming up against um, their end, um, which means that many Vermonters are facing the prospect of unsheltered homelessness. And there is also a rental assistance program, correct? That's that's correct. And that is also um, drawing to an end. Um, and many Vermonters across the state are um, teetering on the edge of homelessness. And so we are not only concerned among those who are already experiencing homelessness, but those um, who may become homeless um, as um, a result of this program ending. You know, right now, Vermont has the lowest rental vacancy rate in the country. Um, rents are soaring. Um, it's increasingly difficult um, for Vermonters to find and maintain um, housing. Um, and so many who had never really um, faced um, the threat of homelessness before are suddenly um, really struggling um, to maintain their housing. It's been described the moment we're at as sort of a perfect storm and this unavailability of rental housing, not to mention home purchases. I've seen graphically displayed, you know, if you look at uh, housing apps like Zillow, and you look at, uh, and a, a professor at Middlebury did a, a paper about this showing what it looks like around cities of a comparable size of Burlington. And he's looking at Boise and Billings and Manchester, New Hampshire. And you see all these red dots that circle the cities indicating available housing. And he shows the map of Burlington from Zillow and there's nothing. What accounts for this? Right now, our housing crisis is really accounts for this. We have a lack of um, adequate um, and affordable housing. And to put the crisis of homelessness sort of in the context of that, you know, I think there are a lot of myths around what um, explains um, variations in homelessness or leads um, to the differences we see across the country. And researchers who've looked at this very carefully have found um, that 
housing um, and not um, many of the other factors that are often um, advanced. So um, mental illness, substance use, climate, um, social services, um, and um, you know other things um, really explain the variation we see across um, the country and homelessness. Um, you know, they argue that homelessness is a housing problem, um, not a problem, you know, of unhousable people. And is that your view, that it's really just this incredible constriction of the housing market that is driving this? Uh, largely, yes. And, you know, there's certainly a lot of complexity, um, but... Um, the, you know, we have to situate um, the problem of homelessness in the context of our large and growing housing crisis. Um, and I, you know, I want to say that we, you know, we have a very large body of evidence showing that the vast majority of people who are experiencing homelessness can be successfully housed um, using, you know, proven or tried and true um, strategies. Um, and when, you know, these strategies are scaled up, we see really dramatic progress, um, uh, you know, against, um, in, you know, making against homelessness. I know you've been looking around the country for models of what a rapid scale up could look like. What are you finding? You know, we're finding a couple of things. We're finding um, that cities um, and institutions that have scaled up the use of housing first or a strategy um, that combines housing um, with a supportive service model have made really dramatic progress. Um, we look, we can look to the examples of Houston um, and Milwaukee. Um, the Veterans Administration also employs a housing first approach and they've made just tremendous um, progress um, in reducing homelessness. Um, but we also see that there are places ac across the country um, that are recognizing um, that when we don't have um, the adequate housing, um, that there are some intermediate strategies that can be employed. And we've been really interested um, in exploring some of you know, those approaches and thinking about how we might adapt them to the Vermont context. What do you mean by a housing first approach? Housing first means housing comes first, really, that we, um, we that housing is foundational um, for addressing other challenges. Um, and so housing first first um, provides housing as um, without without any conditions. Um, and then um, services are made available that are wrapped around um, that housing approach. Um, and when we when we know that when that approach is a, is um, it was implemented with fidelity to the model um, that has um, that has been developed over a long period of time. That it can achieve incredibly um, um, strong outcomes. What is your take on the current proposals being advanced in the Vermont Legislature? Um, I know the House and Senate have different, somewhat different approaches. So maybe if you can explain what they are and what your view of them is. Sure, so we're very concerned um, with the budget that came out of the house um, in its current form, um, only um, an estimated 146 out of 1800 households um, would have access to shelter. Um, so that would result in um, a very large number of people becoming unsheltered. Um, we're encouraged um, to see um, that the House put in um, some funding um, for a pivot 
um, to a transition um, between um, the motel-based shelter program um, and um, permanent affordable housing, um, but we really need to work harder to build a gateway to housing or a bridge um, to housing for Vermonters who are experiencing um, homelessness. I know that in the Senate, uh, Senator Keisha Rahm Hinsdale has proposed a housing bill in which early in the session, uh, she tried to strike a grand bargain between environmentalists uh, who were concerned with preserving land uh, and open land and housing advocates who are calling for a rapid expansion of affordable housing. Where did that land? That um, bill, S-100, um, has passed out of the Senate and is cur currently um, under consideration in the House. Um, and S-100 includes many um, really important um, zoning reforms that would enable enable um, more dense development um, in our downtowns and village centers. Um, and it employs a principle called smart growth or um, in putting more development um, in our um, village centers. Um, and so we think um, that it is an important part of um, the policy solutions we need to be putting forward um, to address our state's housing crisis. Mayor Moreau Weinberger of Burlington has written that the state has, uh, you know, one of the main impediments to expanding affordable housing is the fact that the state has both a local and state, um, super, you know, regulatory mechanism, that being Act 250, which is a state mechanism, and then the normal local zoning things. How big of a problem do you think that is? You know, I'm not really an expert on Act 250. There are others um, who know Act 250 um, better. But as you know, our coalition believes that you know, careful examination of Act 250 um, is really needed so that we can balance um, both the, our conservation goals as well as um, the housing needs of the state. And so I think we're optimistic um, that we'll really have a chance um, to think about how um, we can evolve um, Act 250 um, to meet um, to meet both of um, those priorities. Do you think Act 50 Act 250 needs to be reformed in order for housing to expand at the level that's needed? You know, I think that Act 250 needs to evolve. Um, you know, to meet our current moment, um, it's Act 250 as you know, we all know has really um, been important in preserving um, the Vermont landscape um, that we, um, you know, that we all cherish. Um, but at the same time, um, we need to think about how do we, um, you know, how do how do we preserve that um, and still meet, you know, our growing housing needs. We want a Vermont um, where, um, you know, we have vibrant communities. Um, we want the housing that meets our varied needs. Um, and that's going to require, um, some, you know, careful rethinking of how we, how, how we achieve that without, you know, dramatically altering, um, you know, our, you know, our, our, our villages and our landscape. Vermonters know you as somebody who has been a, a dogged watchdog of, uh, COVID policies ranging from masking to vax policies. Um, but really, at heart, you are a public health expert. What is the connection between the work you've done around COVID and public health and housing? 
you know, uh, housing is so foundational to health. And if we're thinking about health um, and health equity, um, we can't ignore housing. Um, you know, my work um, really since the start of the pandemic has looked at COVID-19 and rural health equity and housing has been a very um, important part of the body of um, that work. Um, and so I'm interested really in thinking about how do we use housing policy um, to advance health um, and advance health equity in our state. What is your biggest concern right now as we head, you know, we're basically careening towards this precipice that we talked about at the beginning? You know, my biggest concern um, is that we um, are about to unshelter thousands of Vermonters um, without a real plan. And I want to say, you know, that the costs of inaction are not unknown. We know that unsheltered homelessness has a broad range of adverse health outcomes. It imposes significant impacts and costs on our health systems, on our communities, on our public services. Um, it's, you know, it, it, uh, having a lot of unsheltered homelessness is not in our interests um, as a state or as communities. And so I am, you know, really concerned um, when I look at the evidence and there is a very large body of evidence that um, shows um, the really dramatic um, impacts and costs. Um, and then I see um, the policy decisions that we're about to make. It's, um, you, you know, it's, we're not, I, I often say, you know, the costs of inaction are not known, um, but the strategies for per, per preventing those, um, those impacts are also um, not unknown. What is the single most impactful thing that Vermont and its leaders could and should be doing right now to reverse the rising tide of homelessness? You know, we need to resist so uh, magic bullet thinking. It, there's not one. Um, there's not one single thing that's going to solve our state's housing crisis. Um, we need investments in, in scale in the evidence-based strategies um, that we know will work. Um, we need to simultaneously turn off the spigot, um, or you know, the forces that are pushing people into homelessness and also pull those who've sort of fallen in the river out, um, you know, as we sort of build much more housing um, to keep people um, housed. So I think it's really thinking um, as, you know, as a state, how do we develop a really comprehensive plan um, that is backed up um, by the investments that we need to implement it? Well, Ann Sauson, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks so much, David.